Our first speaker is Katie Bosler. Katie and her family arrived in this amazing archipelago 21 years ago. Katie is a loyal resident of the Island Kingdom in the Shade, also known as Douglas. When it's sunny, even though she can't feel its warmth, she feels lucky to see the sun shine across the channel on Juno. <laughs> Katie believes everyone is a storyteller, and she'd like to thank Mudrooms for giving anyone who wants to tell their story a welcoming public forum. I promise she wrote that, not us. Anyone who has spent more than a day with Katie knows she is, she is a chronically late person, but one weekend, she found herself in the on-time zone. It was... Awkward. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. I want you to know that from the time I get up in the morning to the time I go to bed, I'm in a battle. I'm in a battle with the clock. There's just not enough time for me to get everything I want to get done in a day or a lifetime, for that matter. And so I make my life more hectic than it needs to be. For as long as I can remember, I've been, I'd say, 20 minutes off the rest of the world. From every workday, getting to work, to every party I've ever attended or hosted, I've miscalculated the 20 minutes between, between on time and too late. Now, I think this all started growing up with my dad. My dad was, let's say he was an idealist who valued quality over quantity when it came to time. And my dad um, had a landscape architecture business in San Francisco. And as he was sort of you know, getting ready for work in the morning, like, like we all do, um, he would get kind of lost in the clever comments in the Herb Cain column in the San Francisco Chronicle over his eggs over easy. I think he developed this tendency living in Italy for a few years in the early 1960s. His first really exciting job was he was part of a group of architects working in Rome, Italy on a University of Baghdad project. And as far as I'm concerned, the Italians have their priorities right. They value good food, good wine, good coffee, naps. In Italy, there's always time. And I think that kind of rubbed off on me somehow. I mean, we left when I was 18 months old, but I know <laughs> that every time I go to Italy, I, I feel at home there. We moved to California when I was 18 months old, and uh, when at that time I was about 10 years old, um, I was having a hard time getting to elementary school in the morning. And it wasn't that far from our house. But my dad would often offer me a ride on his way to work. And as soon as he made the offer, we both knew I was going to be late. I was a familiar sight to the ladies in the attendance office, waltzing in for my unexcused tardy slip. And by the time I was 16, this was a real problem. And if anyone was going to cure me of this, it was our high school senior English teacher, Mr. Skinner. We somewhat fondly called him Mr. Skinhead. You know, he had the shiny bald head, the black rim glasses, and he ran his English class like the military, like a drill sergeant. He called all of us by our last names, 
and he had his little grade book and his red pen, and he was just waiting for any minor infraction. The first one, of course, was walking in late. And what did I do? Walk in a second late, helped! Red check with a flourish next to my name. Now, I think I have this problem because it's a thing about transitions. Like my dad, I like to ease into my day. You know how that goes? And speaking of which, I'm not the only one in this town. <laughs> how, how many of you just got here? Seven o'clock, right? There's kind of a thrill, isn't it, to just sort of slip into that seat right as the event's about to start? Maybe some of you even missed the first part of my story. <laughs> I feel your pain. The 20 minutes off time zone. It was a place I thought I'd be for the rest of my life. But just last spring, for part of a weekend, or actually the whole weekend, I found myself in the on-time zone, and it just didn't quite feel right. So let me tell you about it. We just got done with Gallery Walk, right? The um, art walk for first Friday in December. And this was um, a spring one, where I found myself in town at four o'clock for work, there was a UAS student juried exhibition. I thought, this is great. I'm going to live my dream of seeing every event of First Friday, because usually I get to half of it or I miss the whole thing entirely. So I you know, walk into the Arts Council and looking at the student work, and there's no one there. There's no students. There's no faculty. There's no members of the public. I kind of snap a few iPhotos and, for my job and kind of go, well, I guess I better head out. And uh, as I leave, you know, there's an arts council person sort of slipping the cheese and crackers and grapes on a buffet table. I head downtown, and it's an exhibit I'm really looking forward to. This is an exhibit of black and white photographs of musicians taken by a local photographer. And I think, okay, you know, we've got, <laughs> it's happy hour, right? It's around four o'clock. I walk in the bar, there's a lone bartender just sort of wiping down the bar. Not many people there think, well, guess this party hasn't started. And at that point, I start to feel like all dressed up with nowhere to go. And life in the early zone is kind of starting to feel kind of lonely. So I walk out into the light and unearth my little, you know, first Friday schedule from the Arts Council. Oh, Alaska Robotics. They're having an exhibit of comic book art, framed art, and fresh guacamole. And I kind of think, I'm getting psyched, like, you know, I no elbowing anybody else out of the way for a taste of the guacamole. And so I walk in, and there's a blank wall on the left, and the line of paintings, they're just starting to hang it. And, and I say, hey, guys, where's the guacamole? And Lou says, unapologetically, Marion's in the back still making it. Now, at this point, <laughs> I am ready to go home come back 45 minutes later for that old time frantic feeling. But you know, I kind of cruise around, see a few more exhibits, people start to show up, but I never quite shake that feeling of being unfashionably early. <laughs> the next evening, I'm on a roll at this point. Carl and I decide to see On the Road at the Gold Town, right? Now, we never get to sit on the couch, but I'm on in the zone, right? I'm gonna, we're gonna get there in time to sit on the coveted couch in the back, the one on the risers, the comfy one. We cruise in at 6.40, no one's there. Wow, Carl, it's a couch, you know, we kind of we sit down on the couch, and this is cool. Oh, I, well, 
and we start to kind of mess with the pillows a little bit. You know, I'm thinking, God, my lower back's kind of hurting me, and there's no one to talk to. You start to think about things like that, right? We couldn't quite get comfortable, like Goldilocks style. We wanted it just right. And at that point, I just looked at myself and said, this is just not working. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I thought about, I was ready to go back to whatever my lifestyle was, and then I remembered an interaction I had at the Juneau Airport on a Memorial Day weekend. Friday morning, we walk in. You think there's gonna be lines of people, lots of craziness, not a lot of people. We cruise through security. I say to the TSA guy, what is up? It's Memorial Day weekend and there's no one here. He said, oh, they're here. The early people, they're in the boarding area. The late people, they're not here yet. You're on time. Our next storyteller is Steve Suwing. Steve was born in the Gem State, where he lived the first 16 years of his life. A job transfer for his father moved the family to the Evergreen State, where he lived for seven years. Three weeks after graduating with a bachelor's degree from Western Washington University, Steve boarded the MV Matanuska for one last adventure before his real life began. Over 14 years later, his solo adventure is over, as he now has a partner and two sons to accompany him on his life journey. Steve is addicted to any travel and tasty beers. <laughs> he is passionate about family, friends, and community. Please welcome Steve. Hello. My life experience has taught me that there's generally two types of awkwardness that occurs. There's the slight awkwardness that I like to call the slapstick awkwardness. This is the realization that the person you've been seeing at the coffee shop for the last three, uh, three or four times, his name's not Joe, it's Stan. <laughs> this is the feeling that you have after you've left the stage and you realize your pants have been unzipped. As a parent, this is also the feeling you have when your young child decides that he or she is done with his lunch or dinner and decides to vomit on somebody. <laughs> this awkwardness is fleeting, but the other side of it, generally speaking, is an awkwardness that's put on us by maybe our peers, maybe our family, maybe our community, societal norms, and sometimes this type of awkwardness can be painful. It can cause scars that last a lifetime. Tonight, I'm gonna tell you a story that I've told a number of times. And it could be about that type of awkwardness, but if it is, I really don't know about it. In the summer of 1967, my father and his brother traveled to northern Idaho for the World Boy Scout Jamboree. Part of their experience was a homestay with a local family. I should probably ask, I don't know if this was dinner or day or two days, um, but I do know that after this homestay that they had, my father was invited into this woman's home as a guest to continue his education. Of course, his brother got the same invitation. 
They travel back home, and I have no idea of what the decision-making process was for either of them or their family members. But in December of 1968, they landed in Spokane, Washington, and made the short journey to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, that would be his home for the next 23 years. Now, this winter of 1968, I don't know if you were there or not, but in Idaho, this is one of the coldest and snowiest winters on record, 68-69. They began making themselves comfortable and uh, took up odd jobs to pay for their education. Well, apparently, the classes that my father had, he was a high school graduate, as far as I know, but they didn't qualify for registration to the college that he was going to be attending. So he had to take some additional classes. They were working odd jobs to pay for their schooling. One such job that he worked was at the Dairy Delight, which was a drive-in. And in the summer, excuse me, the spring of 1972, he met a young lady there, and they became friends. On the 14th of June, they had their first date. And uh, apparently it went well, because they kept dating until 1975, when they got married exactly three years from their first date on the 14th of June. Now, when I asked my mom about this relationship, I said, how, how did Grandpa feel about that? Because when my father and my mother first met at the Dairy Delight in 1972, my father was 21 and my mom was 14. I have sons, but I have a pretty good idea about why he was uncomfortable about it. And so she tells me, she says, yeah, Grandpa wasn't really a fan of it. He didn't really like your dad. And apparently this continued for the three years that they dated and also up to their marriage. And for me, because I know the story, it was kind of interesting that that's the only thing she would say about it. I've told this story a number of times, and each time, as many of us do, the story is told differently, and sometimes we embellish. Well, my latest embellishment of the story <laughs> is that it does get warmer sooner down south. So it was an unseasonably warm day in 1975, April, when they first met. And I imagine them there at the Dairy Delight, and if you've ever been to one of these drive-ins, you know, more often than not, it's, it's soft serve ice cream. And more often than not, it's chocolate and vanilla and then the twist. Now, I imagine it's busy. Things are going gangbusters. They're both in the weeds. They're running all over this Dairy Delight. And they both grab for the twist. My mom grabs it first. My dad puts his hand over his hand, quickly releasing it to let her have that scoop first. Reason why this is an embellishment of the story and their eyes meeting over the twist handle is because my father was born in the Caribbean and his mother was born in Barbados and his father was born in China. Now you may know that North Idaho is popular for a lot of things. <laughs> Maybe infamous for a lot of things. And you might have heard of a group that called themselves the skinheads in the 80s and 90s that lived in Northern Idaho. So, early 70s, 21-year-old man dating a 14-year-old girl, 
And by North Idaho standards, he's black. <laughs> yeah, that could be awkward. <laughs> and it's only in the last couple years as a more adult person, maybe more experienced, and as a father and returning to North Idaho where people that are non-white still kind of stick out or draw your attention, that I realize how awkward their story is and how awkward it could have been and how it could not have been successful. 38 years later, they're still married. Um, they've got two sons. I'm one of them. Uh, they've got four grandchildren and um, they've got a strong relationship. I don't know what this story means. Maybe one day I'll have some more meaning to it, but it's definitely shown me that we don't have to subscribe to the awkwardness that people want to put on us. And we can fight through that in their case. Love, commitment, perseverance um, that they had for one another. And only once have they mentioned any kind of awkwardness or uncomfortableness with their situation. Not once have they mentioned anything that was negative about their experience. I feel fortunate to have that example in my own life and hope that I can be that same strong example of not letting other people put awkwardness onto me. Thank you. Our next speaker is Carla Hart. Carla has lived in Juneau most of her life and suffers awkward moments almost daily when blanking on names of people she knows, even close friends from time to time. The story of awkwardness she is going to share tonight begins far away amongst relative strangers when something started bugging her. Please welcome Carla to the stage. Thank you. I took this storytelling on tonight as sort of a dare to myself because I do forget names, I also forget in space. I have my little crutch here. Um, my story begins in Thailand. Uh, I was volunteering teaching English in a small rural community and living with a host family. And I headed downstairs to go to school one morning and I noticed the mother going through the daughter's hair in that stereotypical looking for Laos thing that you see a lot when you travel around in rural parts of the world. I didn't think much of it. I went to school. I was in my office at the school. And I felt something crawling in my hair. And I reached up, and I grabbed it, and I squished it, and I threw it, which was pretty normal for a tropical environment. And I wouldn't have thought twice about it, except I had just seen this louse checking going on in the house that I was living in. And so it planted a seed in my mind, and I decided that I was perhaps infested, but I was afraid to go, or awkward, with going and telling the family that I had seen this or that I might have a problem. And so I went online with Google and started learning about lice and their life cycle and their eradication and everything I could about lice. And home remedies, because I was in a pretty rural area. So I went down and bought a jar of vinegar and doused my scalp in vinegar. 
and then set about with scheduling a bus trip for the weekend two hours away to a town that had a pharmacy. Got into town, got the pharmacist's recommendation, came home with a packet of something for head lice, and then went online to research what I'd gotten and discovered it was a product called Lindane, which had been banned in 50 countries around the world <laughs> because it's a serious neurotoxin. <laughs> So now I was stuck with the situation that I had this toxin that I needed to dispose of properly. I had nothing for my head lice, <laughs> and I still couldn't talk about it. Um, so I was continuing to use uh, what I could, which was vinegar, and I had found a bar of tea tree oil soap and was scrubbing my head with tea tree oil soap. Um, this is a house that's a pretty traditional Thai house, and there were, was no hot water or anything like that. So I'm scrubbing away trying to deal with it. I lost my passport about a week earlier, or a week later, which meant I got to go to Bangkok. Um, so in Bangkok, I went around, in addition to getting my passport, um, miming head lice to Chinese pharmacists in an effort to find one of those little bamboo combs that I could comb my hair. Um, and then I went to a swanky mall to uh, body shop and got a bottle of pure tea tree oil, which was my other research option. Um, so I proceeded to douse my head with tea tree oil, comb it like crazy, but the itching and the, it, it was just getting worse. Ultimately, my time in the village ended and I went off to Chiang Mai to Thai massage school. Uh, Thai massage school brought its own awkwardness because there, they were people who spoke English who probably weren't infested with head lice, and we were sharing fabric cushions and, like, in close proximity. So my other go-to was uh, the alcohol hand sanitizer, which I could get in Chiang Mai. So I was, like, very, very generously dousing my hair with alcohol hand sanitizer um, a lot <laughs> with the thought that I would kill off any little louse that managed to hatch on my head before it could do any damage to anyone else. This proceeded for a while, um, bus rides wondering who else had been sitting with their head against the headrest and me not wanting to, to spread to anyone, at the same time thinking, how am I not getting it from other people all the time? My flight home on Cathay Pacific Airlines business class, because I splurged with my Alaska Airlines miles. Every hour I would get up and go to the bathroom and use the hand sanitizer thing. <laughs> I have no idea what I smelled like to the others. So I got home and um, proceeded to put myself on a self-imposed quarantine for 12 days. I didn't sleep in my bed because I didn't want to contaminate it. I slept on a mattress on my uncarpeted floor went through everything for 12 days, hot water washes. I, I really was into the Laos life cycle at that point. Um, and so at the end of 12 days, when everybody should have been hatched and done and gone, I still had this itch. And then when I would shampoo or anything, it would go in my ear. And I'm just like, dang, what can I do? So 
Ultimately, I called my doctor, who's the same doctor who got to deal with me when I came home from the Amazon with a bot fly in my scalp. And he just directed me straight to an ear, nose, and throat specialist. He didn't even want me to come in. Um, <laughs> so I went to the ear, nose, and throat specialist and said, you know, I might be crazy, but, you know, it's on my head, and then it goes in my ear, and would you just take a look? And so he looks in my ear, and he's like, well, I see some bruising. And I'm like, well, I've been sort of going with a Q-tip a bit. And he's like, and there's something oily. And I'm like, well, I remember when I was a kid, my mom used to put oil in the dog's ears for ear mites or something. <laughs> so I tried squeezing oil in my ear. Um, <laughs> and he's like, there's that, but there's nothing else. And like dropping, I heard that you can see like little poops, you know, or would you just look and see if there are any louse poop in my ear? <laughs> and by now he's like, okay. So he looks with his instruments and he's like, no, no louse poop. And then he says, you know, I've been practicing for 20 years and I've never heard of a louse going into anyone's ear. <laughs> So I said, okay, maybe I'm crazy. I need a psychologist. And he said, well, let's try some anti-itch cream first. So in summary, basically, the suggestion of a head louse resulted in a journey of poisoning my scalp for about 10 weeks. <laughs> and ultimately, my lice, which were never in the same spot as the lice that were described in the book, um, were, were in my mind, and they were never real. <laughs> so it was a lot of awkwardness for 10 weeks, and yeah. <laughs> Our next storyteller is Clint Farr. Clint ends his email with a Kurt Vonnegut quote. That is my principal objection to life, I think. It's too easy, when alive, to make perfectly horrible mistakes. This quote reminds Clint to thoroughly enjoy the good, sane, and calm moments in life, to recognize and appreciate when things are not disastrous, awkward, or weird. The good times are precious, because at any moment, it could all end. Please welcome Clint Farr. All right, I wish, I wish I had but one awkward story to tell. I have a Rolodex of awkward stories to tell. Uh, but the awkward story I'm going to tell tonight comes from that awkward period of time from about the age of 12 to, well, what time is it anyway? Serenity. Um, it was a date in high school that I want to talk about tonight. And I got to say that I blocked much of this night. So what I'm going to say to you is mostly conjecture and supposition. Because <laughs> I really don't know what the hell happened. <laughs> so, but first, I imagine it began with the phone call. And for you youngins here in the late 80s, phones were a box on the wall. 
and you would have a smaller box on the bigger box that was that you would take off the wall <laughs> and there would be a number pad of buttons that you would have to actually exert effort and push it was also attached to the larger box with a with a twirly with a twisty cord if you remember that it stretched it was cool so another thing you should note about 17-year-old Clint Farr was I could not extemporaneously talk to females. I had to write a script. <laughs> I've been writing for a long time. <laughs> so, okay, so something like ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. Ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. You know, and then the script. Ring. Hello. Hi. My name Clint Movie. Me? Check yes box. Maybe box or no box. <laughs> Let's call her Jen because it was the 1980s. Jen, check the yes box. Okay. So, I also I also suppose now that um, I picked her up in a car, I guess, and. And who was familiar with Anchorage in the late 80s? Uh, we, I took her to a movie. Uh, you might remember the Capri Cinema. Those of you who are familiar with Anchorage. Capri Cinema in the late 80s made its money in one of two ways. Porn. Or critically acclaimed foreign cinema. So... So... So we went to the latter. And the movie that we went to, uh, remains one of my top five all-time favorite films, was Cinema Paradiso. A really fantastic movie. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Cinema Paradiso. It begins is, and mostly takes place in a rustic Italian village. And it is the story of a child who apprentices himself to the curmudgeonly old projectionist at the village cinema house. And it's their relationship, and it's a beautiful friendship that develops between these two. Um, one of the quirks of the projectionist was any time there was a kissing scene in a film, he would cut it. So there was, uh, you know, you'd have this embrace, and the two characters on screen would be coming up to each other, and then it would cut, and then it would start again after the kiss had occurred. And of course, the lusty Italian crowd was like, ah, child, whatever, but they were mad. <laughs> and... And so they were growing up. At one point, there's a fire in the, in the projection booth, and the old man is blinded, and the child saves him by dragging him down the steps. Um, and then he grows up, and he becomes this very handsome teenager, and he falls in love with this uh, beautiful lady that's in the village, and they're, they definitely like each other, but for circumstances I can't quite remember, they have to, uh, they have to leave. They, 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 can't, they can't begin a life together. And it's very sad. It's a very heartfelt movie in that way. He goes off to Rome. He becomes this famous director and rich. And then 20 years later, he gets this notice that the old projectionist had died. And he comes back to uh, the, old, the village. And, you know, so emotions are a little heightened now. This beautiful story of this apprentice and this boy and the apprentice had died. I mean, the projectionist had died. And um, 
so so things you know so emotions are starting to get a little high now, and and uh, there's a there's a procession down the middle of the Italian village, and he sees his old girlfriend. He sees her, and I think in his mind he's like, I can have this life. I can have this life that I never had. I, I we can get back together. We can fall in love. We can have a family. This can happen. This love of my life. There she is, and he's about to speak to her when two beautiful children run up. And then this handsome man walks up and he sees that that life, that potential, is gone forever. Emotions are getting really high now. And then, at the end of the funeral, he gets a package. It's from the projectionist. He doesn't know what it is. He takes it back to Rome with him, and it's a reel. It's a reel of film. And he plays it in his private studio, and it is there on the screen, bigger than life, in black and white, the passion and love that he will never have in his life in kiss after kiss after kiss after kiss after kiss and embrace and kiss and embrace. And it is this hugely emotional moment. And the man on screen, he begins to cry. And I begin to cry. <laughs> I begin to bawl. I lose my mind. Eyes open up, water comes out, I can't breathe, I'm hiccuping, there's tears, tears going up, snot coming out, it's terrible. I'm, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm devastated by this movie. And I thought, I should, I should check on my date. She's staring at me dry-eyed like the Gobi. Like I just fell from the sky into the seat next to her. I must have taken her home that night. I don't remember. I do remember she never talked to me again. <laughs> um, it was that awkward, yeah. Yeah, and that's it. Our next speaker is Kathy Hawker. Kathy grew up here in Juneau, and though she has roamed, she has always come home to Southeast Alaska. She likes to draw, paint, hike, kayak, and learn from the natural world. She's also a former naturalist for and big supporter of Discovery Southeast. Here's Kathy. And tonight, my story has nothing to do with art or nature. Um, awkward is directly proportional sometimes to your chronological age, and this is a story about how I learned that. Uh, by the way, I've changed a couple names in this story, and not really because it embarrasses anybody in particular, but uh, maybe just for a little bit of mystery. So somebody you might, you might recognize yourself. I don't know if you're here. <laughs> <laughs> I was in my first year of college at Harvard, a Juno girl in the big city when some friends of my parents from Juneau called up and said they were going to be in Boston and they'd like to take me out to dinner. Well, Harvard dining halls in the mid-80s specialized in dishes that included things like poo-poo platter and venerable vegetables. So I was really happy to get the invitation. So I met Ben and Cindy outside my dorm. We got in a cab and were whisked away through the streets of Boston and fetched up in front of Anthony's Waterfront Restaurant. I didn't know it at the time, but Anthony's was kind of a big deal. This was where if you were a mover or a shaker in Boston, you ended up to go see and be seen. It was kind of a posh place. 
It was also a little bit crowded, so it took us a bit of time to get our table, but we finally got ushered through into the noisy dining room and seated. Now, I realize at this point you are imagining this dining group of three, myself and Ben and Cindy, but there were actually four of us there. The fourth member of the group is about to take over the story. She's Ben and Cindy's daughter. Her name is Amanda. And she's the kind of child who, through a combination of charisma, self-possession, uh, gutsiness, and just sheer intelligence, is a force of nature. I um, had known Amanda for a few years, had babysat her on occasion. One time I was babysitting her, and I leaned out the window to call her in to go to bed, and this sweet little blonde child had the audacity to glare at me and flip me off. But she also had the intelligence to head off any uh, wrath on my part by flipping me off with the wrong finger. <laughs> so here we are at Anthony's in the dining room, and we, no sooner had we sat down at our table than Amanda disappeared. We proceeded to order, and Amanda came back. And then she disappeared again. And this was the pattern throughout the whole dinner. It was very odd. She would just vanish and then come back to eat a breadstick or a bite of spaghetti and then go away again. And, and it was very disconcerting to me, but Ben and Cindy didn't seem too concerned, and so after a while it became kind of a game to look around the, the room and see if I could spot her as she disappeared behind a booth or went behind a waiter's legs or pressed her nose against the lobster tank. Around about dessert time, though, she came back, and she actually came back to stay. She sat down and she demanded a piece of paper and a pen and she started to write a letter. How do you spell dilemma? How do you spell anguish? How do you spell commiserate? Before we could ask, she folded up the letter, dropped the pen, and disappeared again. And then she was right back. We were just starting our dessert when there was a presence beside our table, we turned and looked, and there was a small, very dapper, very well-dressed older gentleman. He bowed slightly to us, and he said, good evening, my name is Anthony, and this is my restaurant. Is this your daughter? <laughs> ben and Cindy nodded with wide eyes. Anthony said, the senator and his wife would like to meet you. Slightly awkward pause, and what could we say? And pretty soon we were shaking hands with the senator and his very, very well-dressed wife. It turned out that they had come out for dinner. The senator's wife had recently been diagnosed with a very unfortunate illness, and she had broken down crying during dinner, and the poor gentleman was trying to help her and, and comfort her, but neither of them knowing about the little eavesdropper behind the booth, who had decided that she needed to write them a letter of condolence. Names were exchanged, handshakes were, were given. Uh, as I recall, an address was also exchanged. It seemed that Amanda had just gained herself a couple of really powerful pen pals in Massachusetts. <laughs> we paid the bill, headed out, uh, waited by the curb. And I remember there were some kind of bollards along the curb. We were waiting for a taxi, and Amanda was bouncing back and forth and jumping on top of them still, just a ball of energy, when suddenly she stopped, froze, looked up at us, and we knew there was some very important question coming. How come, she said, how come it is you guys never meet anybody? 
Thank you. Our next speaker is Bill Lady. Bill grew up in Waterloo, Iowa, where he was a science fair nerd, making it to the National Science Fair in 1961. Bill's wife, Nancy, complains he's still an 11th grader, still doing science fair projects. With his electrical engineering degree from Stanford, Bill returned to Iowa for his first job with Collins Radio Company, including 15 months as a field service engineer in Thailand and Vietnam in 68 and 69. Bill returned to Stanford for an MBA and moved to Juneau in June of 71 for a job as a budget analyst in Alaska Department of Administration. The next four months, Bill spent with the Juneau Model Cities program, working for CBJ. Bill's boss told him, you don't belong in government work. <laughs> Why don't you buy the outdoor restaurant Fred Overstreet and I started last, last summer? You can make a go of it. Bill and Nancy sold the Gold Creek Salmon Bake in 1990 and then founded Alaska Applied Sciences, Inc., their present company. Bill now spends most of his time working pro bono for a small charitable family foundation founded by his father, presenting research papers on how humanity can and should run the world on renewable energy. Two years ago, a few days after Christmas, Bill started feeling old. I'm too young to be old, he said. He's been swimming regularly at Augustus Brown Pool ever since. He says it saved his life. Please welcome to the stage. I arrived in Juneau on my birthday, June 18th, 1971, on the Taku at the old downtown ferry terminal. And the hold on the car deck was my shiny red 69 VW Squareback with a sunroof, a babe magnet that had not yet proved, <laughs> not yet proved itself. Four of, four of us have been hired with these fresh MBA degrees out of Stanford to work as budget analysts, Department of Administration, uh, budget Management Office, Bill Egan, Governor, uh, Joe Henry, Commissioner of Administration, Mert Charney was the Director of Budget and Management, and uh, Gene Smith was his deputy, so four new guys there. I was fired in December. <laughs> <clears throat> that was awkward because I was living on a houseboat. I wasn't about to buy, uh, nothing for rent in 71. I wasn't about to buy a house for $40,000, so I bought this houseboat from a couple on Lake Washington and drove it up, not sailed it, but drove it up. Had it parked down at uh, Aurora Basin, 13,000 bucks I paid for that. Another babe magnet, I hoped. <laughs> so this was awkward, having no job and a boat that was in the process of freezing up in December down in Aurora Basin. But Karen Rosenberger, who was the secretary there, said, go down and see Doug Terrell, my, my gentleman at the moment. I think he's looking for somebody, and maybe he'll give you a job. So in January, I started as the evaluation specialist at the Juno Model Cities program, part of CBJ. In about April, Tom Perkins, not the one we know as the singer, but a different Tom Perkins, said, Bill, you don't belong in government work. Why don't you buy that little outdoor restaurant that Fred Overstreet and I started last year? You can make a go of it. I said, what, I, I'm less than a year out of Stanford Business School and you want me to buy an outdoor restaurant for 800 bucks? So I talked him down to 750 and bought it. <laughs> so I hired a guy, Hank Eklund, uh, Pete Eklund's brother Hank, for $1,000 to work for me that summer. And it quickly became apparent that people were not going to come up there from downtown on their own. I had to buy a bus, so I bought a bus for 1000 bucks from Eric Lindegard out at Oak Bay Garage. He used one that was beyond its prime. 
And that was my transportation. I made a couple of signs with a router and some cheap 1x12 pine salmon bake special, and I'd go down to the cruise ships. Now, there were three cruise ships then, the uh, Princess Pat, the Princess George, and the West Star coming to town. They had about 125 passengers each. That was the cruise ship industry at that time. So I'd go down there and hand out my brochures when they came to town, hoping that when I came back at 6 o'clock with the bus, somebody would get on, I'd take them up there. And Hank, my only employee, would uh, be ready for him. I didn't work very well. But one day, the cruise director from the West Star, uh, Tony Schur, came out. And his wife, uh, Dodie, was the entertainment director on the ship and said, uh, hey, this looks interesting. We're looking for things for people to do. There's nothing to do in town other than the, than the uh, Glacier Tour. So uh, can we come out and check you out? And I said, well, sure, be my guest. So they came out, and they really liked the place. It was a sunny night. And they said, well, we're vegetarians, but we'd break our vows once a week if you'd invite us to come out and be your guest for dinner, and we'll bring some people from the ship with us. I said, great, let's do it. So every week I'd go down there, and Tony and Dodie would get on, and 15, 20 people from the ship. That was a big deal for us. So at the end of the season, it's late August, and it's getting rainy and miserable and cold, and I said, folks, summer's over. This is going to, next cruise is going to be our last time that we serve you. It's been wonderful. And they said, yeah, that's a great idea. And we understand. We're going to be in town one more cruise after that. So why don't you come be our guests on board and bring your wife or girlfriend, and we'll have a social time of it and celebrate the end of the season. I said, great, good idea. This is awkward. I had no wife, no girlfriend. <laughs> so I was desperate for a date, which is in itself a very awkward thing. <laughs> so the day, this is next Tuesday. So the days are clicking by and no date, and I don't know what to do about it. I've been working all summer. I don't have any friends, no, no lady friends. So I'm, so I'm out at Bob Jacobs' house right across from Glacier Valley School at 7 o'clock, one miserable, rainy, late August night. And the parking lot's filling up. I said, what's going on? And Bonnie was a substitute teacher, and she said, it's a PTA meeting. So a couple of bells went off, and I said, well, <laughs> maybe, just maybe, there'll be a cute, single, young teacher not wearing a ring over there. <laughs> and if that fails, at least I'll get free punch and cookies. So I was out of there over to the, um, the PTA meeting. And so I, I, I look around the room, and of course, I'm, nobody bothers me, minds me. There's only one person who fits that description, and she's busy talking to a parent. And so I joined the line. I was the only other person there waiting <laughs> my chance. And she has a name tag on, Nancy Waterman. And um, so, so I, um, <clears throat> I uh, lost my nerve. It would be awkward to talk with her. So I said, uh, I'll go home and look her up in the phone book and give her a call. It wasn't in the phone book. I'll call the district and get her number. They said, we did not give out that information. <laughs> so the only thing I could do was write her a note and take it out to Glacier Valley School and slip it under the door. And so I wrote this note that said, please let me spirit you away in my red chariot for dinner on the West Star on Tuesday night at 6 o'clock. I don't know your phone. Please call me. <laughs> I put my phone number on there. So I take it out to Glacier Valley School. I'm going down the hall, and the janitor catches me. I help you. It's Har Harold Fossum. And he said, well, we'll put it right on her desk. So he opens the door. I put this note on her desk. And then I go home and wait by the phone. I was there promptly at 3 o'clock the next day waiting for the phone to ring. Did it ring? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she called. 
So we had this lovely conversation. She has a very nice voice. She agreed to go with me to the West Star. I pick her up in my red chariot, the 69 VW Squareback, where she's living at uh, Rocio Zemke's place on 7th Street with other unmarried women. We get down to the cruise ship. <laughs> Tony's up there on the gangplank, welcomes us on board. We go up, just the four of us at their lovely white table. And about the dessert round, they say, well, how long have you two known each other? <laughs> about two hours. <laughs> so we dated for a, a few weeks or months, and then I went away for the winter to Hawaii on some sort of foolish adventure and came back in the spring, and she took me back, and we've been together ever since. <laughs> Before I introduce our next speaker, I want to mention um, a few things. Uh, our upcoming spots that are left, our next event is January 14th, and the theme is Grace. I think we have one or two spots open for speakers. Um, the rest of it, uh, On the Road in February, Wildlife in March, etc., is on our website, mudrooms.org. Uh, thanks again to Drive North tonight, Tyler on the guitar and his dad, George, Grass on the Dobro. They were great. <laughs> if you know other musicians, we're always looking for them. Um, so, Katie Moritz is a recent college grad and transplant from St. Louis. She has lived in Juneau for four months, two weeks, and three days, but who's counting? So far, since she's been here, she's gotten banged up at roller derby boot camp, taken a turn as a hockey goalie, acted as the front woman of a classic rock cover band for one night, and Impulse adopted a cat. She figured she'd probably embarrass herself in front of each of you at some point, so why not get it over with all at once? Here's Katie. Hi. Um, actually, um, the intro said that I will probably embarrass myself, but I don't actually embarrass easily. Um, and I've never really felt awkward ever in my life. Um, so this is kind of an anti-awkward story, kind of. Um, I can probably count the times I've been truly embarrassed on one hand, and I don't really remember details, so I guess it wasn't really that bad. Um, I can probably link this back directly to my parents. Um, they're both veterinarians in St. Louis. And every dinner we had together, um, they talked about their day. And when I say they talked about their day, um, I mean they spared no bloody or pussy detail. So <laughs> um, probably a transcript of our dinnertime talks read something like ESPN's top 10 anal glands edition. Like, it was really gruesome. So that's why I was really surprised um, when I got a call from my mom one day. Um, I was working in Virginia at the time. This was like a year and a half ago. Um, I have a little brother who's 13 and another brother who's 20. Um, and I got a call from my mom. And she said, you know, I don't know what to do. Timmy, the 13-year-old, he keeps asking me about puberty. And I said, this, this is the woman who has talked about literally every bodily function known to cats and dogs over chicken casserole. So you can imagine I was a little surprised that she didn't know what to say. And I was like, Mom, you know, give him the facts. Tell him what's up. You know, it's fine. It's fine. Um, and um, 
he, he did have a little bit of a different upbringing from me. I um, went to public school. He went to a really tiny conservative Catholic school. Um, I had to go through sex ed no less than five times before I graduated. They wanted to make darn sure I knew how to put a condom on a banana before I walked across the stage. So, <laughs> so um, I could understand, you know, I never got the sex talk from my parents, so I could understand. A little nervous. Okay, I was like, Mom, it'll be fine. A few days later, I get a call from my dad. He sounds like pretty frustrated, angry, and he's like, you know, I cannot believe your brother. And I was like, what? And he was like, he asked me what testicles are. And I was like, well, why are you upset? You know, maybe, maybe you should just tell him what they are. It's not a big deal. <laughs> um, you know, just, he's, he's like, he has some. He, he should know what they are already. I, I don't see why I should have to explain this. Is, he's trying to start something. He's trying to start a conflict with me. And I was like, you know, I really don't think someone would ask about testicles unless they actually wanted to know. <laughs> it's not really something you just toss around. So, <laughs> um, you know, I got off the phone. I'm in Virginia. I'm just, what is going on in Missouri? You know, it's, that's weird. A few days later, not kidding, and I, I fielded a few weird, vague emails and phone calls from Timmy himself, who, who, like with keywords like changes and growing up, and I'm like, okay, maybe there is something kind of going on, I, maybe I need to step in. So um, <laughs> I, get, I get another call. I get another call from my mom. This time, she wants me to, she, she, she's asking me how I would approach the topic Timmy has asked her about male anatomy and, you know, something that happens often during puberty that she doesn't quite know how to explain. She doesn't know what to do. Um, so I said, Mom, you know, um, you have three kids, so at some point you must have known a little bit something what's going on. And she was like, you know, you know you're right, you're right, but I had, I had three sisters, and I was like, okay, it's not really... Okay, okay, and she's like, you know, I've been thinking, I really think you would be the best person to explain this to him. Anyone in the audience who knows me knows that, you know, I'm probably not the expert on this. My mom picked her one gay child to explain <laughs> this to her straight son. So, um... I, you know, I kind of, I'm starting to feel a little bad because I think Timmy actually is in need. He needs somebody to take control of this situation. It sounds like it's getting out of hand, not to be crass. But, <laughs> um, so I say, fine, all right, I'll talk to him. So, but I'm not going to go in without reinforcements, you know. I'm not a parent, I don't know, I don't know. I'm, I've done some reading, you know, growing up, the period book, whatever. So I go, <laughs> I go online, I go on Amazon. And I'm searching for books. You know, I, I'm going to get at least two just so he has, you know, well-rounded. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. So I'm on there. And my method of searching is a little different than you might expect. I'm, what I did was I would go into the comments and I'd find the irate people. And whatever they were mad about, I would judge my purchase off of that. So the first one went like this. This book says that gay people are people too. Do not buy this. Purchase. Second one, this book says you should love yourself unconditionally. It says you should love yourself and respect yourself the way you are. Do not buy it. Purchase. 
So, got my books. I'm heading to a family vacation, meeting them in Maine, and uh, I see Timmy. And I, I find I, I had talked to him. I kind of like told him this was coming. You know, don't. It's gonna be fine. Be cool. Be cool. You know, be cool. So I kind of pass him off the books. I'm like, hmm, there you go. And he like acts really weird about it. He's like, makes a big deal out of it, and is like, why would you do this? This is weird. This is weird. And I'm like, okay, trying to make me feel weird about it. Like I said, not easily embarrassed, kind of didn't bother me at all. But I was like, all right, fine, well, we'll see. But I kind of notice he disappears for a few hours. And uh, later that night, it's the middle of the night, I'm asleep. I hear a little tap, tap, tap on my door. And I say, come in. And I hear someone walk in and stand by my bed. And there's like a long pause. And I'm like, you know, what's going on? And Timmy says, thanks for the books. <laughs> And I was like, no problem. You know, I know that's a lot of information that you probably haven't had. Literally, his sex ed class at school was called morality. So <laughs> <laughs> probably haven't had a lot of information. Let me just think about it for a while and, you know, come back to me with any questions you might have. I'll do my best to talk about it with you. It's not a big deal. He's like, well, I do have one question. I was like, what's that? He was like, is all of that stuff true? <laughs> And I was like, yeah, sorry, you know, sorry, it's going to be okay. He was like, no, I'm glad because the book I had been using was the 1945 Boy Scouts of America handbook. <laughs> it says a lot of things are sins. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's the story of how I had the sex talk with my little brother and lived to tell about it. So thanks, guys. <laughs>